All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin our time this morning by calling on the Lord together and asking for the help of the Holy Spirit as we hear the preaching of the Word. We need ears to hear, and we're going to ask for that this morning from our Father in Heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we come now, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your great faithfulness, God, that you have displayed as we gather in your name on the Lord's Day, week in and week out. Lord, you have shown steadfast love to us, and you have stood by your promise, Lord Jesus, to build your church in our midst. Lord, you've grown us in number, you've grown us in holiness, and Lord, we ask for grace this morning. Sanctifying grace, Lord. Give us ears to hear your word today. Lord, we pray that your word would run to and fro and accomplish his purpose in this meeting. Lord, we need to hear from you. We have hungry souls, Lord, whether we realize it or not. And we, we need nourishment for our souls. And so we ask today as your church that you would show us Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, as we come to Matthew 21, I want to remind us quickly that Jesus has just entered the final week of his earthly life. This is referred to often as Passion Week, the week of the suffering of Jesus Christ, those last seven days. And it happens in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. Last week we learned that on Palm Sunday, the Lord Jesus makes his dramatic public entrance into the holy city. You remember the palm branches are laid before Jesus. Jesus is riding in on a colt, on a donkey, and the crowds are praising him. Hosanna to the son of David. They're, they are worshiping him as the, the promised Davidic Messiah of Israel. The arrival of the promised one entering into the holy city. Our passage picks up on the very next morning after Palm Sunday, Holy Monday. And what unfolds is, is a dramatic encounter in the temple in the middle of Jerusalem. And so let's read our text together this morning. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Occasionally, people surprise us with their behavior. And sometimes... We describe seeing someone do the unexpected in the following phrase or the following words. I saw a different side of that person on that particular day. You know, something happens and you think you know somebody and you see a reaction that surprises you. And you say, man, I saw a different side of so-and-so on that day. And usually... That's meant in a negative sense of I thought I knew him and then he reacted this certain way and I saw another side of the man that I thought I knew come out of him. Saw another side of him on that day. Well, Holy Monday of Passion Week reveals a different side of Jesus, a different side of Jesus Christ. And it's not that we haven't seen this side of him already in Matthew's gospel, the more severe side of Jesus Christ we have. But it's, but it's that it's so prominent in this passage that it's jarring to us, surprising to us. The setting is the temple in Jerusalem, the most important piece of real estate in the land of Israel. And this temple was a gift to Israel that symbolized God's presence in the midst of his people. It was a place of worship where they worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was a place of sacrifice where uh, offerings and sacrifices were made to the God of Israel. And it was a place where national feasts were kept in Israel. National festivals where citizens from all over the land of Israel would 
pilgrim in three times a year, make their way into the holy city, the population would swell to three or four times its normal size as the worshipers come into the holy city to keep feast, to keep festival in Israel. And that's exactly what's happening in our passage. It's Passover. It's, it's one of the three holy national feasts in Israel. The holy city is bustling with people. Pilgrims and worshipers are everywhere. And at this particular moment, on this particular Monday, verse 12 tells us that Jesus enters the temple. What a holy moment for you to meditate on sometime this afternoon. Jesus enters the temple. You could preach a whole sermon right there on those four words. Jesus enters the temple. What is the temple? It's the meeting place between God and Israel. Who is Jesus The only mediator, meeting place between God and man. In this moment, on this particular Monday, Jesus enters the temple. The true temple enters the copy. The true temple enters the temple. In other words, everything that that temple stood for and pointed to just walked in the front door. And he's standing in the midst of the temple. The person of Jesus Christ. And I say that to say this. If anybody has a right to do what he's about to do, it's him. The whole thing pointed to him. He is the substance standing in the midst of the shadow. He's the point of it all. All the sacrifices, all the priests. The temple itself, he's the fulfillment. And he walks in on that particular Monday, and what does he do? Verse 12 tells us that he drives out sellers and buyers from the temple. He throws them out of the temple. He drives them out of the temple of the Lord. And not only that... Verse 12 tells us that he flips over tables and chairs in the process of cleaning out the temple of the Lord. Pause right there. I want you to realize the context that you live in. None, zero, of the popular Modern day worldly conceptions of Jesus prepare you for this story, this narrative. None of them do. This is the real Jesus. We would expect him as a prophet of the Lord to speak a word against these corrupt practices in the temple. And he does speak a word against them, but he does more than that. In other words, Matthew tells us here that he physically drives people out of his father's house, out of the temple. I mean, you would expect the temple to be a place of theological debate of God's word says this. Oh, no, God's word really says this. But 
It's all fun and games until furniture starts turning upside down in church. And then you realize this ain't a normal day. There's something extraordinary, something unexpected happening here. There's furniture and now it's upside down. And there's a holy man standing in the midst of the temple, you know, cleaning that, cleaning house. It's unexpected. And, and the most unexpected is that Matthew is telling us that Jesus did this. Not some hot-headed Pharisee that got mad at what he saw. You would expect that. That wouldn't be too surprising. And not Peter and, and uh, not James and John, the sons of thunder, just coming in hot and overreacting. Not them. Matthew says Jesus did this. Sinless, holy Son of God incarnate, Jesus is the one doing this. At this moment, I would submit to you that some of those standing there saw another side of Jesus Christ. They saw another side of him. Now, John's gospel, we're in Matthew, John's gospel gives us some insight into this story. It helps us gain more understanding. And specifically, it gives us two additional details. In John chapter 2, John records Jesus cleansing the temple. Except, it's instead of at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, John records Jesus cleaning out the temple in John chapter 2, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if you lay out the chronology of the Gospels, this would be about three, most likely three years prior to Passion Week. He walks into Jerusalem, holy city, into the temple during the national feast, Passover, and he does the same thing. In other words, as we, we read the Gospels together, we realize Jesus did this twice. It wasn't even the first time he did it. He did it twice. Now, this is where the polite police get nervous. You say, what do you mean? Well, there are those in the church that feel like it's their job Anytime we come to something hard in Scripture or a difficult truth to swallow in Scripture, the polite police feel like it's their job to apologize for God, to apologize for Jesus. The polite police are sitting there saying, like, man, you mean we can, now we got to apologize for him twice? He did this twice? Not just once? This instance becomes the framework, the bookend, so to speak, of the public ministry of Jesus Christ at the once at the very beginning of his public ministry and once at the very end of his public ministry. And that means this is significant. This is important. This is revelation from God about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we need to decide on the front end what our role is and what our role is not. Okay? Our role is not to apologize for Jesus. That's not our role. In other words, imagine this, you know, uh, conversation. Polite police come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, we, we know you're a holy man. 
But in retrospect, looking back on this day, is there anything you would have done different? I mean, is there anything that you would tone down? And sinless Jesus says, no, I wouldn't do anything different. And the response is, is yeah, but, but like, really, like, okay, okay, Jesus, what about twice? Did you have to do it twice? I mean, was once not enough? Did you have to... To, to confront this false system, did you have to do it twice? And Jesus says, I did what was required. I did what righteousness required of me. Yes, I had to do it twice. And then the final, the final, you know, you lean in. Okay, okay, Jesus. But the furniture. Surely, surely, Jesus, you could have made your point and protested the corruption in the temple. And, and, and the furniture, it could have, like... Did it have to be upside down? You understand? And, and, and Jesus' response, sinless Jesus, says he did exactly what was required. In other words, our job is not to call Jesus down to our level. That's flipping things around. Our job is to see how he's revealed in Holy Scripture and receive him and adore him and worship him and ultimately to be conformed into his likeness. In other words, he's not wrong in this story or any story. We are. We are. We have to decide our role from the very beginning. It's kind of like the, 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 the famous question... I believe it was Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia where she asked about the Christ figure, Aslan, and she asked the, the lion, and she asked, is he safe? And many of you have heard this. The response that she gets is, of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's Jesus. He doesn't fit in this little preconceived box that we have. He's Jesus. And we're seeing another side of him in this passage, John 2 gives us one additional detail about the cleansing of the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 17, the disciples who saw it understood it as a fulfillment of prophecy. Specifically, the words of Psalm 69, verse 9, which says this, Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. And they saw Jesus do that and they said, that right there fulfills this over here. Psalm 69, verse 9. That's helpful for us because that gives us a name. In other words, what do we call this other side of Jesus that, that we're seeing displayed in the temple? John chapter 2, verse 17 calls it zeal. Holy, sinless zeal. And John even says, consuming zeal. Consuming zeal. This is what is being revealed as the temple is cleared out and as the furniture is flipped upside down. Not sin, but zeal. Holy zeal. You need to know this about Jesus. The Bible says that zeal consumed Jesus Christ. He wasn't an indifferent man. There wasn't an indifferent bone in his body through and through, top to bottom, start to finish, he was a man of zeal, white, hot passion for his glory, for his father's glory. It consumed him. 
The zeal of Christ wasn't some peripheral attribute of Jesus. As if any of his attributes were peripheral. His zeal consumed him through and through. He wasn't a cold man, a passive man, or an indifferent man. He burned with white hot sinless love for the glory of his father. Specifically, John says it was zeal for his father's house. It consumed him. Jesus makes his indictment. After he drives them out, after the furniture is turned upside down, Jesus says this in Matthew 21, verse 13. He says, God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but then he, he makes his protest, but you have made it into a den of robbers, Jesus says. They flipped it upside down. Now that indictment is likely twofold. He protests what they're doing on the one hand, But even more so, he protests where they're doing it on the other hand. Selling sacrificial animals was a needed service on feast days. Just think about it. Pilgrims would come all over Israel. The numbers are in the hundreds of thousands. Sacrifices were required on feast days. It was certainly helpful to be able to buy sacrifice in Jerusalem rather than take it all the way from northern Israel down to the holy city. There was also a temple tax that was only accepted in one currency. And so the money changers were offering a needed service. It's a helpful thing to be able to change out the money, get the right currency so you can pay your temple tax. But the problem was that these feast days presented the opportunity for lucrative profits. I mean, this is a free market capitalism, you know, gold mine of everybody's coming in and swelling in the holy city. And all of a sudden, the, the merchants have dollar signs in their eyes and it's time to make a bunch of money. In other words, the emphasis has shifted off of worship of the Lord and, and the emphasis is now upon this commercial Success, trade, merchant. But the main problem was where they were doing it. That's the main protest, is where this is happening. In the temple. In the temple. They had no business doing this in the temple. That's the protest. Jesus says the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. This is a shorthand citation of Isaiah 56 verse 7. Which says that God's house, God's temple is to be a house of prayer. Listen, for all nations. Not just Israel. But the Gentiles. A house of prayer for all the nations. At the dedication of this temple, Solomon prays to God in 1 Kings 8. It's a famous prayer. You should read it sometime soon. One of the things that Solomon prays for this temple in verse 31 is he prays for the foreigners who come to pray to Yahweh in this temple in Jerusalem. The foreigners, the nations, the Gentiles. And Solomon prays this. He asked God to hear them from heaven 
When foreigners come and pray towards this temple and pray in this house, he says, God, hear them from heaven. And he says this, that all the nations of the earth would know your name. In other words, do something in this temple that stretches past Israel and that your renown is known to the ends of the earth. All the nations. And so by God's design, Gentiles would seek and find the God of Israel in the temple. And there was a whole section of the temple marked out for this purpose. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the only large open section within the temple gates and almost certainly... This is where the merchants had set up shop, is in the court of the Gentiles. Not only the merchants, this is where the religious leaders allowed this to happen. Right under their nose, right under their watch, and maybe even the priest got some, you know, uh, really nice, you know, high profit rent from the merchants setting up shop in the midst of the temple. This is the system... That's overthrowing the purpose that God has for the temple. And Jesus says, you're robbing God of his glory. That's what's wrong. What's the big deal here? The big deal here is that God is being robbed of his glory. That his purpose for his house is being overrided by the purposes of men. By the agenda of men. It's intolerable to Jesus. They turned a place of worship into a place of trade and they cut off Gentiles from the opportunity to see the God of Israel. These are the circumstances that caused Jesus to burn with holy zeal. And he indicted them with the words, you, uh, you are a den of robbers. Den of robbers. Which is another quote from the Old Testament. And that's one of the things that you need to learn about Jesus. That in his normal language, you know, uh, a couple of sentences, it seems like in every paragraph, he just echoes and alludes to and cites the Old Testament scriptures. It's the way that he talks. And that tells us something important as disciples of Jesus is if we want to understand who Jesus is and Jesus' mission and Jesus' work, we don't need to just understand the New Testament. We also need to understand the Old Testament because his ministry, his person, his work fulfills the Old Testament. And this is, happens all over the place in Matthew's gospel. And we had like four Old Testament citations just in this passage. This one comes from Jeremiah 7, Den of Robbers. And I want you to turn there with me. Jeremiah chapter 7 is a famous temple sermon that the prophet Jeremiah preaches at the gate of this temple in Jerusalem. God tells him to stand right by the gate and the worshipers are coming into worship and he's letting them have the word of the Lord right as they're coming in. He's preaching to them. Jesus, by the citation, sees himself reenacting this same temple sermon, you're going to see these same themes show up in Jeremiah 7. Let's read it together. 
Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter the gates to worship the Lord. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Pause right there. Understand what they're doing. They think they're untouchable. Because they worship in the temple. Man, do you realize where I go to church? I go to church in the Jerusalem temple. God's not going to judge me. This is God's house. This is the meeting place between God and Israel. And the prophet says, do not trust in deceptive words. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. But the temple of the Lord. Look at verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, Commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's the exact phrase that Jesus quotes in Matthew 21. The prophet preached against those who trusted in the deceptive words. They had false confidence that just because they were a part of temple worship, they were not liable to God's judgment. And Jeremiah preaches the truth to them. Those are deceptive words, and you better amend your ways. And don't you think you can live in sin and then come and stand before God and worship Him in His temple? God sees that, and you turn God's house into a a den of robbers. By citing Jeremiah 7, Jesus is indicting false religion. The whole temple system, He's indicting it. It was mere externalism. They're trying to to get their sacrifices for Passover. Got to get my sacrifice for Passover. But but, But their hearts aren't turned to worship the God of Israel. They're missing the point. They're involved in the external ritual, but they're missing the point of the whole thing. Worshiping God. The temple system wasn't the point. The one that it points to is the point. The God of Israel. And they had corrupted what was to be a place of true worship. The cleansing of the temple was a purposeful and public act of defiance. And really, this follows right behind Palm Sunday of him riding in on a donkey, palm branches, and Hosanna. That's public. Something different is happening here. Uh, there, there are other places in the Gospels where somebody 
you know, exclaims the, 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 the identity of Jesus. And Jesus says something along the lines of, keep that to yourself for now. Not, not during Passion Week. This is, this is at all the restraints are thrown off. And he is presenting himself as the king of Israel. He is presenting himself with the one who has authority to take charge in the house of God. This is public and purposeful. And by doing it, Jesus intentionally enters into conflict with the religious leaders that ruled that temple. He intentionally does it. I mean, I, uh, I don't know if you want to say Jesus picks a fight, but he intentionally enters into this conflict. It needs to happen, and he says it's going to happen right now. After cleansing the temple, Jesus performs miracles of healing in verse 14. I mean, just think, I mean, just, just that, and we'll come back to that in a minute. This is what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus. Righteous anger and cursing his enemies, and in the same moment, extending mercy and compassion to those who are sick. His holy perfections on display at the same time. He heals those who were sick in verse 14, some of those around who saw that miracle, the wonderful works of Jesus, they start to praise him. Especially, specifically, the children start to praise him. That's, the, that's David's son. That's the Davidic Messiah. And they say, Hosanna in the highest to the son of David. They were celebrating Jesus as the promised one. And Jesus doesn't say a word to restrain them. Doesn't say, hey, quiet down. It's about to be some trouble if you don't pipe down. He just lets the praise roll in the temple. In other words, that's what should have been going on the whole time. That's the purpose of the temple, a place of worship to God. Let the praise roll down. Let the worship come down on the Son of God. Hosanna in the highest. He just lets it roll. And in verse 16... Sorry, verse 15, we are told that the leaders are indignant, which means they're really mad. They're really offended. Not only at Jesus' action of cleaning the temple, but he's letting them call him the son of David. He's not correcting them. And so they ask a question in verse 16. Do you hear what they are saying? Which is kind of offensive. Of course he hears, and Jesus just says, yeah, I do. I do hear what they're saying. And he just lets it happen. And, and, and he comes right back to them and he says, have you never read? You ask me if I can hear, have you never read? Now, this is one of the things that you got to understand. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the most notorious Jewish scholars in all the land. And he just asked them, have you ever even read the Bible? I mean, this is the other side of Jesus. He's not playing. There's no, there's no playfulness here. It's, 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 it's life and death serious. Have you never read? And then, boom, another Old Testament citation. It just leaks out of him. His whole ministry is framed in Old Testament language. And this time he cites Psalm chapter 8, which is a psalm about children giving praise to Yahweh. And Jesus takes that psalm about children giving praise to Yahweh 
And he applies it to the children praising him in the temple, saying, that's me. That's me. I'm the fulfillment. This begins a conflict with these religious leaders in Jerusalem that's going to last almost three whole chapters of Matthew's gospel. It's a prominent theme of the final week of Jesus' life. So you need to be prepared over the next several weeks to hear this theme revisited. Specifically, here's what happens in the next three chapters. After this conflict is initiated with this temple controversy, you have eight rounds of conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders. And some of those rounds are they come to him trying to trap him in a question saying, Hey, you know, uh, uh, what do you think about this? And then some of those rounds are Jesus going on the offense and saying, Hey, whose son is David? And you see this back and forth that ends with Jesus shutting their mouth. And they don't dare to ask him any more questions. And then right after the eight rounds of conflict, you see the Lord Jesus pronounce seven messianic woes of woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Condemnation language from the Son of God, Matthew, the whole chapter 23 is calling a precatory, condemning prayer, curses down on these men. Now that's surprising that three chapters of the gospel would be eaten up with this theme of Christ versus his enemies. Now that theme of conflict with Jerusalem, the temple, and the leadership helps us to understand what Jesus does next. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus curses a fig tree. And unless you understand that you always, and say it again until you just never forget it, you always read the Bible in context. You never read the Bible out of context. That is not some random, man, Jesus just, he must just hate plants, you know, just curses a fig tree. What did that fig tree do to Jesus? This has a context. It fits into the context of what comes before it and what comes after it. This is not a random story. It fits into the context of the temple conflict before it and the eight rounds of conflict that follow it. This is a prophetic, symbolic act from the Son of God. It portrays the judgment that Jesus is about to bring against that false religious system. And it's fitting. A fig tree without fruit has the appearance of something that it's not. In other words, it's like false advertisement. Like you, you, It looks like it has fruit. It's in full leaf, but there's no fruit to it. It has the appearance, but not the substance and the reality. And so when Jesus curses this fig tree and it withers, this is a picture that's symbolic for the whole temple system that Jesus just indicted in the previous paragraph. That whole system is externalism. It has the appearance of being religious, but all it is is this this thin veil. When you get down to it, there's no spiritual fruit. It looks to be righteous, but in fact, it's not at all. And just like Jesus cursed the fig tree, he's about to curse this whole temple system 
And you see that in Matthew chapter 24, just a few chapters later, Jesus says, his disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, see these beautiful buildings, these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, look right there. There's not going to be one stone left upon another of that temple. He's going to curse it. He's going to bring judgment upon that false religious system. And so we have the same Jesus whose word heals the sick in the temple. That same word also causes a fig tree to immediately wither. And that same word will soon judge the world in righteousness. And learn this about Jesus. He has come to save and judge. He has received both tasks from his Father in heaven. He is the one who has come to save and to judge. This passage focuses on the zeal of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you this is an often neglected attribute. I say that because you're you're not going to find a million copy bestseller on the righteous anger of Jesus. You're not going to find a million copy bestseller on the holy burning zeal of Jesus Christ or Christ in conflict with all of his enemies. It's often neglected. It's not the only neglected attribute of Jesus, but it's an often neglected attribute of Jesus Christ. But the zeal of Christ is important. It assures us. That everything that Jesus does, he does it with all of his heart. Zeal consumes him. The one that our soul loves, what's he like? One of the ways you can answer that question is zeal consumes the Savior. Everything he does, he does with all of his heart. Some would say that other attributes of Jesus come more naturally to him. And that Jesus' righteous anger and his holy zeal come less naturally to him. They flow less naturally from his heart. That is unbiblical. Zeal for his father's house consumes Jesus. There's nothing peripheral about his zeal. There's nothing secondary or subordinate about his zeal. This is who he is. This is who he is. 100% zeal. This is who Jesus is. Don't get caught up in the trap of ranking the attributes of Jesus. This one's more important than this one and this one and this one. Don't get caught up in that trap. And definitely don't get caught up in the trap of pitting the attributes of Jesus against each other. As though Jesus were in this big, consuming, uh, confusing battle of do, do my nice attributes win today or do my severe attributes win today. Don't get caught in that trap. The attributes of Jesus are not in competition with each other. He is who he is. The same moment on the same day, he he heals some and he curses others. Children worship him and at the same time he's throwing furniture upside down in the temple. That's who Jesus is. Both aspects of him are glorious, sinful. We ought to know him as he's revealed himself. We ought to love his zeal and we ought to worship him as the man of zeal, the one full of holy boldness, holy edginess, 
white-hot zeal for his Father's glory. Do you love this about Jesus? He's not safe, but he's good. Do you love this about your Savior? First and foremost, you need to make sure today that you don't get caught on the wrong side of his holy zeal. And if you don't hear anything else today, please hear this. You need to make sure that you don't get caught on the wrong side of this white hot blazing holy zeal. Specifically from this passage, you need to be warned about externalism. Trusting in outward things. False religion. Don't have the real thing. It would sound something like this. I'm fine. I go to church. I'm not watching football today. I'm listening to you preach. I'm, I'm fine. I'm in church. I hadn't missed a day of church in three years. I'm fine. Almost exactly like what Jeremiah says. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Jesus tore that temple to the ground. There wasn't one stone left upon another. He cursed it like a withered fig tree. And he will explode in judgment upon externalism on the final day. Those who trust in externals. I'm saved because I go to church. I'm saved because mama's saved. I'm saved because I'm baptized. What more do I have to do? I'm saved because I read the Bible. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you tremble before the word of God? Do you love the father who is in heaven? Don't get caught on the wrong side of his zeal. Repent and believe the gospel. He is a gracious king. Just as zealously as he will judge you on the final day, just as zealously he will save you and forgive you of all of your sins. He'll do it with all of his heart. Don't get caught on the wrong side of the zeal of Jesus Christ. Another point of application is turning the corner of, okay, I understand I'm supposed to love these attributes of Jesus. What we got to make sure we don't get caught up in is that we merely esteem the zeal of Christ. Because the scriptures call us to also be conformed into the image of Jesus. So not only do we worship him as the man of holy zeal, he actually calls us to become like him and his love for his father and his holy zeal. Mark Jones says this about the emotions of Jesus. This comes from his book, Knowing Christ, a chapter called The Emotions of Christ. He says this, our own perspectives on human emotions are tainted by sinful ideas of what these emotions should look like. But most Christians suffer from a lack of righteous anger. We could use more of it in the church today. God's anger and wrath are prominent themes in Scripture, not expressing anger in the presence of injustice is not a sign of godliness, but rather moral weakness. In other words, don't boast 
that nothing ever bothers you. Jesus is not like that. You ought to get bothered by things that bother God. That's part of what it means by becoming holy. It's not all it means. It's part of what it means by being holy. Conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus did what others who came before him failed to do. He was right in what he did. Jesus did what Adam should have done. Think about Adam. Adam should have, should have done exactly what God charged him to do. He should have taken dominion. He should have driven the serpent out of the Garden of Eden. Adam didn't do that. Jesus did. Jesus did what was required. He drives impurity out of the house of God. He's the true and better Phineas. Remember that story in the Old Testament? There's a plague unleashed because of idolatry on the people of God. And this white, hot, holy, Old Testament warrior priest named Phineas puts a spear through the idolaters to stop the plague. Jesus is the true and better Phineas that purifies the house of God. So you can't simplistically set this attribute aside and say, but that's Jesus. That's not me. That's Jesus. He is Jesus. You're not wrong there. But the question is, how are you going to keep these commandments in God's word? Psalm 97 verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. You understand that's part of what it means of loving God is hating the things that God hates. Not this passive, indifferent mentality, but it bothers you and you burn in your bones for the things that God hates. There isn't supposed to be any indifference in you about sin. None. You who love the Lord, Grace Community Church. Be exhorted today. Be encouraged today. Use Christ as your example today. Hate evil. Hate it. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus is found in Hebrews chapter 1. And it says more than Jesus never sinned. It says that he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. He loves what is good and hates what is evil. Be like him. Romans, Romans 12, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this to the church. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. We need to highly esteem that in our midst. A zealous Christian is a holy Christian. Brothers and sisters, do not be slothful in zeal. Stir it up with the word of God. Stir it up by reminding yourself of the character and the perfections of Jesus Christ. How is your zeal today for the house of God? How's your zeal today for the house of God? The church is the new covenant temple. When Jesus saw the temple corrupted, it bothered him. How is your zeal... To see God rightly worshipped in his church. You got zeal for that? 
That worship would be rightly ordered. That God's, that God's people would gather and be governed by God's word. And when that doesn't happen, that there would, there would be protest. That it would bother you. I mean, if God is not obeyed in God's house, where is God going to be obeyed? The church should be a place of obedience to the Lord. We're the, we're the ones who are supposed to be holy as God is holy. So the zeal of Christ is not just something that we should esteem. It's something that we should follow him in. And then finally, the last reminder from this passage is that Jesus expects holy zeal to drive his disciples to pray for the removal of all hindrances to worship. To pray mountain-moving prayers. Look at verse 21 and 22. We'll read it again. And Jesus answered them and said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. There's an easy part and a hard part to that paragraph. The easy part is relating what Jesus is doing here to the context. That's the easy part. Jesus is not saying you can, you know, uh, uh, you know, as a disciple of Jesus, you can plant a garden this summer and just anytime you want, just curse your tomatoes and they'll, they'll be cursed. That's the easy part. He's not doing that. He's relating it to the context. This is a, a prophetic, you know, a symbol of judgment. That's the easy part. The hard part is understanding how in the world Jesus cursing that fig tree has anything to do with your prayer life. But that's exactly what he does. He uses it as an example of how his disciples ought to pray effective prayers of faith that God answers from heaven. Jesus is teaching just like his words brought judgment upon the fig tree, the prayers of faith, the prayers of the church prayed in faith will remove obstacles in the way of the advance of the kingdom of God. This is not the first time we've seen this language in Matthew's gospel where Jesus compares uh, a praying church to the removal of mountains. In the immediate context, the obstacle was the false temple system. But in larger context of the whole Bible, the word mountain is often used in a metaphorical sense to refer to something that is, it seems to be this insurmountable obstacle in the way of the people of God. Several weeks back, you will remember we looked at Zechariah's prophecy that God promised that a mountain would be turned to nothing before Zerubbabel, the rebuilding of the temple. Not by might, not by power, but by God's spirit. And this is what Jesus is teaching us in this passage, he calls his disciples to move mountains by prayers of faith, to remove the spiritual obstacles that stand in the way of the advance of the kingdom of God. And so finally, Christ-like zeal should move us to pray bold, mountain-moving prayers that our Father would be honored in this world. Let's leave this place today with a resolve to know and worship Jesus as he truly is. 
with a resolve to pursue conformity to Jesus Christ, specifically in his holy zeal, and, and with a resolve to pray as he taught us to pray, to remove the mountains that stand in the way of the people of God. Let's pray now as we close this morning. Lord, we come to you today, God, and we pray that you would bear witness to your word in the midst of your temple, in the midst of your church. And Lord, we pray that you would edify us with your word. We need to be built up. Our minds need to be instructed. Lord, our hearts need to be exhorted. God, we pray that you would give us what is needed. Lord, I ask that you would cancel anything that was spoken today that was not true, was not fitting, not from you. And anything, Lord, that was true, fitting, and from you, God, that you would make it stand, that you would cause it to bear fruit in your church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.